welcome to the Israel Bible Podcast. My name is Cindy Parker, and I am an author, a speaker, and the professor of Holy Land Studies at Israel Bible Center. I'm passionate about reading the Bible in the physical, historical, and cultural context of its day. And I love having these geeky conversations with people about new things. In this podcast, I'd like to invite you to join me as I sit down each week with other faculty members of IBC to discover new aspects of the Bible. These are some of my favorite dialogues because as a modern audience reading an ancient text, we know that the Bible does not need to be rewritten, but it needs to be reread. I love the work of Robert Alter, and if you've been around the IBC community long enough, you are very likely familiar with the translations of the Hebrew Bible by Robert Alter. And we have two, two roundtable talks that are quite brilliant with Robert Alter. I wanted to pull from the most recent one because it's a really interesting conversation with Dr. Gruber about one small collection of verses in 2 Samuel in which the two of them go verse by verse throughout the passage and they talk about the Hebrew and why Alter translates it one way when the King James Version or the New Jewish Publication Society Version go a different way and why that matters. But as I was halfway through editing that episode, I realized I really needed to start with a precursor. Why do we have varieties of translations and why does it matter? So I backed up a few steps and I thought about a hot topic seminar that took place last year. It was between Dr. Ellie Lazorkin Eisenberg, who is the Dean and Professor of Ancient Cultures, Dr. Yeshaya Gruber, the Professor of Jewish History and Culture, and Dr. Nicholas Shazer, the Professor of New Testament and Jewish Studies. The topic was, Can Bible Translations Be Trusted? For this episode of the podcast, I'm going to start with Dr. Shazer and a comment he makes about Genesis 2, 22 through 23. That's the portion that says, the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Now, if you heard the podcast episode with him back in February, you heard how he argues for tsela, which is normally translated rib in this passage, to more accurately be side. And so, Dr. Shazer, how should we be reading this verse? Of the scriptures of Israel that are written in Hebrew, that word selah uh, never means rib. Instead, it means side, the entire side of something. How how do I know that, right? Do I just have some sort of revelatory, clandestine information that no one else has? Of course not. The only reason I know it is that I go to other instances of the word as as it shows up in scripture, and I look at the, not only the word as it appears there, but also the context of the word. Um, And so, for example, I'll give you two examples. One is in Exodus chapter 25, talking about the Ark of the Covenant, uh, God speaking to Moses about the building of the Ark. And, and it says, you shall cast four rings of gold for the Ark, two rings on one Selah of it, and two rings on the other Selah of it. Now, an Ark obviously does not have ribs, right? Uh, and, but an Ark does have four sides. It's essentially a box, right? Mm-hmm. So in that case, in that context, clearly Selah means side. 
I'll give you one more example. This is 2 Samuel 16. David and his men went along the road while Shimei went along the Selah of the hill opposite him. Um, So again, a hill doesn't have any bones or ribs. Rather, it's a hillside, the side of a hill. Um, The the word Selah shows up uh, over 40 times in the Hebrew Bible. And at every single contextual point, it always means side. So that way we can take that information and transport it back into this text and say, well, if we're translating Selah's side 40 times, we might as well translate Selah's side here as well. And what that tells us theologically, actually, is something very, very important. And that is that the woman and the man, right, are complete equals, that, that the woman is taken from the man's Selah entire side, not just the little rib so that the woman is subordinate and, and lesser than the man, but that God actually takes both sides and it shows the equality between genders according to Genesis. And now I, I'll just note for those who don't read Hebrew, right, um, you actually don't even need the Hebrew, okay? I, I'm going to play my hand here. You don't even need the Hebrew to know that Selah in this text in Genesis does not mean rib. Because what, is, what does the man say when God brings the woman to him? He says, at last, this is what? Bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. If it were just a single rib, all that Adam would be able to say is, finally, this is bone of my bones. But what we have here is the side, the entire side, both bone and flesh. Um, so, so that's just a, a good example of why context is really important. And if you're concerned or questioning what a particular word means in a particular context, Go to every other instance of that word and just see what it says. I want to make a couple of comments here. I had to check what Nick was saying when mm-hmm. he said that there's no English translation that he knows of that translates Selah as side. Shai, I hope I'm wrong about that. I, I expect there is some translation somewhere that translates it as side, you know, some specialized translation of Genesis and so forth. Mm-hmm. However, I, I just checked quickly the new uh, JPS, Jewish Publication, Trans- uh, Jewish Publication Society translation, and Robert Alter's new version, which came out about a year ago, even less. Oh. Um, and I thought they must have changed this. Mm. They did not. And they, they, they both have rib. Now, this is a really interesting point because both of those very recent new translations are fully aware of all of the scholarship about all of these different words, and they're trying to change traditional translation choices. In many cases, they they depart from, say, the King James Version or the first JPS, which was based on the King James Version, and they, they choose something that is more in accordance with modern scholarship rather than a traditional religious rendering. And yet, in this case, they both stick with rib which, is, which show, tells you something about translation, which is that things are very much tradition-driven, even in the innovative ones. And, and that's something that people need to consider as well. I did a roundtable talk recently with uh, David Instone Brewer, who's on the NIV committee. And um, we're hoping to have another discussion with him very soon, which people can look forward to. Very interesting and exciting scholar on a range of topics. So it, it was in, really interesting talking to him and I questioned him about a couple renderings, including things that he himself has written should be changed. Um, and he told some stories about how the committee discussed even what his proposal was for changing a verse. And they were saying, well, it's definitely correct. We should change it. You know, your proposal is definitely correct. But the consensus they came to was that, well, uh, church dogma hasn't yet caught up with this. So we're going to keep... Tr- translating it in the way we did in the past 
and wait until people realize that it's a wrong translation and then we'll change it. Which, which he was comfortable with, but I'm, I'm really not comfortable with because it's going to take forever to get it changed according to that approach. Um, but there are an, an enormous number of things like that in uh, translations of the Bible, and I hope we'll get to some more examples. I just wanted to say about Nick's example that Jewish translation in general will always go to the original. We'll always look at the Hebrew. And part of the reason is because it is the original itself, but also because specific words and concepts are so important in the Hebrew text. This is actually something that Nick, Dr. Shazer, uh, highlights a lot in his articles that you can read on the Israel Bible Center website. Um, there are so many um, interconnections among different passages of the text via usage of specific Hebrew words and concepts and allusions. And that is so important. Um, so it sounds like both Nick and myself lean towards a more literal translation, a more word for word, on the more word for word side of trying to convey what the Hebrew Bible is saying for that reason. Because if you depart from the, from the words, you will miss so much. So it's a judgment call. You know, do you try to convey the meaning of each sentence or do you try to convey a broader whole where there are specific words that are linked to each other all throughout the text? This is why I have a hard time recommending just one singular translation. Usually I tell people to read with five different translations open because when you get to the parts where every version starts giving you a weird jumble of words, you've identified an area where you might want to go back and look at the original language. Even if you don't read Hebrew or Greek, there are several powerful tools available for free online. Let's go ahead and look at two more examples. The first one is interesting because it is connected to what concepts we associate with words and some of that being dictated by modern history and how those associations may not accurately reflect what was going on in the Israelite period. The second example deals with how the sound of Hebrew words hold meaning that is terribly difficult to convey in other languages. Dr. Gruber is going to take us into these examples. I'd like to give another example from my conversation with David Instone Brewer. This was a great example. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's a problem in all of the translations because um, we read in the Torah, for example, about slavery. And we read about it with the Israelites in Egypt. And then you, you have certain situations where someone can be a slave in Israel and, and so forth and so on. And it's, it's problematic because the Hebrew word um, Evid has such a range of meanings. So in talking with Dr. Instone Brewer about this, he said, well, in, in certain of these cases, we're talking about voluntary slavery. And I said, well, surely that's an oxymoron, voluntary slavery. I mean, that's the, to be, for it to be voluntary is the opposite of what it means to be slavery. Mm -hmm. And he said, yes, but we decided to keep the traditional translation and people, if they're interested, can go find out more and discover more about it. The problem is that the average reader of a Bible translation a, doesn't know that they need to find out more. They think they're getting God's word. Um, B, they don't know where to find out more or, or how to find out more. Um, and uh, C, they will get a misimpression from these translations. Now, again, my perspective is that 
virtually any translation will in some way give a misimpression of the original. You can't avoid that. And that's why people need to understand this and be cautious about how they use translations and not, not consider them to be um, an exact uh, representation of the original. Even when you deal with the very basic concepts, you're going to have problems. So I actually took the verse that is the, or the part of the verse that continues what uh, Nick was reading. And it says that, so she will be called Isha because from Ish she was taken. Now, this, uh, when you hear that, you can, you can see the similarity in sound, um, Ish, Isha. And in English, there's a very nice and easy way to render that because woman and man happen to have a similar sound. So you can say, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. But in certain other languages, you don't have this similarity of sound. So how can you possibly convey the point that's being made in the text, ish isha? Well, in many cases, translators just ignore it and they just render what is the basic meaning and leave out what is kind of the um, main uh, feature of the Hebrew original. But there are translators who try to reproduce it and they have to do some very unusual things. So for example, even Martin Luther, who played a great role in bringing um, the Bible into the vernacular and making it more available to people, despite his many problems and issues, um, we would say from a Jewish perspective. But uh, he certainly did some remarkable things. And so you see here his um, translation, the 1545 edition. And for man, he uses mensch. Now that's already a different difference from the, the English. Because you see here it says, and the man said, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Well, that's a distortion of the original. Because in Hebrew, it's two different words. Vayomer ha'adam. Ha'adam is different from ish. Ha'adam is like human being. Um, so it should be something like, and the human said, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Um, but again, it's a traditional rendering of both Adam and Ish to say man. Um, Luther is actually better in representing the original here because he uses mensch, which is like human being. And then, and then he uses man for man, but he doesn't use um, what would have been the normal word for woman, vibe, because it has nothing to do with man. It doesn't make any connection. And he saw that the connection was there in the Hebrew. So he invented a word. Um, in this edition, it's menin. It's like she-man. She shall be called a she-man because she was taken out of man. Well, that reads very strangely. Why did he do that? It's because he recognized that otherwise he couldn't convey the point of the text. But many people are against this kind of translation. And they say, well, that sounds very strange. You know, you're not actually translating it into German because you're, you're making up some weird phrases or some weird words. But then if we go to another very strange translation, the translation of Andrei Shoraki, which I love, it's, it's quite an incredible um, volume. Andrei Shoraki was a remarkable person uh, in his own right. You can look him up because I don't want to take too, too much time. I know we have so much else to discuss. But um, so he tried to recreate as much as he could a direct connection with the original Hebrew text. And he also did what Christians call the New Testament, translating them as Jewish 
Greek text. So he, he has a very different translation of the New Testament than traditional New Testament as well. Um, and so what he does is he takes this principle a step further. So Luther is more accurate than the English. And Shuraki tries to be even more accurate than that because instead of saying man or human being, he says glebe, which means like earthy thing, earth, earth person, um, earthling, as some uh, strange English translations have put it, earthling or groundling. Why? Because the text also says he, there's Adam who is taken from Adama. It's exactly the same kind of linguistic connection in Hebrew. So Shuraki tries to maintain even that. And it sounds really, really weird. So he's like, the earthy thing said, um, this one will be called woman. So he uses the word woman, but then he adds in the Hebrew, isha, because otherwise you wouldn't understand. Because out of man, fam and om, so they don't sound the same. Um, ish, he adds in. Uh, she's taken. So many people, when they read Shuraki, and in fact, we had this reaction not long ago on our website, uh, in response to, to something, I think, from a course, they say, well, this is just bad French. Well, no, it's not just bad French. It's bad French if your standard of French is the modern French literary language. But if your standard is trying to get as much meaning as possible out of the Hebrew text and conveying it somehow to people who don't read Hebrew, then it's a fantastic translation. Very strange. You know, for, no, for knowledge... Um, because of the many meanings of knowledge in Hebrew, he uses penetre, to penetrate, um, which can have the intellectual meaning of penetrating to something or also like the physical, sexual meaning, which um, Ladat has in Hebrew. So this is just to show the extraordinary complexity and difficulty of translating and the kinds of choices that have to be made, even with the most basic of concepts. Um, and... I think most people who read a translation are unaware of that. One more thing. After they talked at length about dispelling any conspiracy theories that translators are out to get you, and after they spoke about all the ways you can trust the translations we do have, they started talking about what they say when they are pressed to give an answer to which translation to recommend. And in doing so they stumbled across another tricky aspect of translation. I mentioned early on that I have a, that e, the ESV, the, 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 the English standard version, that I would recommend that one in English to all of you on this, on this panel. Not, not the guys I'm talking to right now, but, but the people participating. So the ESV I like a lot, but it has a gender problem. And that is sometimes it doesn't explain Express the inclusivity of men and women in the text that, it, that it's translating. So, for example, I'll just give you an example. The Greek word adelphos, adelphos can mean brothers, but depending on the context, just like in Hebrew, the Hebrew anashim, anashim can mean men, yeah, but it depends on the context. It can also mean people, both men and women together. The same thing is true of adelphos in Greek. Um, and every time that word comes up, the ESV always just says brothers as though Paul is only talking to a bunch of men. We know this is not true, even from the context of Paul's letters. That's not the case. Or to go back to Shia's point, where you have the word Adam in, in Genesis. Uh, ESV is going to translate that man. But as Shia rightly notes, Adam does not mean man. Adam means human or human being. Um, so that is, there are certain points where the Hebrew and Greek itself are inclusive. 
And what we, what we want to try to avoid is English translations stepping on the larynx of the original writers and silencing the gender inclusivity that's already there in the original text. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree with what Nick was just saying. And I think that actually, just to build on that, we could say that most translations are somewhat gender unfriendly in how they treat the original. I, and I mean that not in terms of like contemporary politics or political correctness or anything like that, but just in terms of the original. And um, there's a huge gender problem with trying to translate, for, uh, especially with the Bible, but with anything. I mean, one of the issues in English is that English doesn't really have gender for nouns, whereas Hebrew mm -hmm. does. Um, so you lose a lot of actual content and allusions that way. And other languages that do have gender, well, they're gendered words are not going to match up with the Hebrew one. So, you know, something that is masculine in Hebrew might be neuter or feminine in Greek or in um, Polish or in, I don't know if Swahili has gender or not, but if it does, then it probably has some, some gendered words that are different from the Hebrew uh, gender uh, assignments. So there is a big, big problem with um, trying to convey gender. And it's a really intriguing question because probably it came out of a place of having seen one of these very modern translations, but it raises a whole host of other issues that people should be aware of. Like the, the gender references in the Bible have been almost completely erased in English translations. And that's just because of the nature of the language. And just to stay within this whole Genesis theme that we've had going on during this whole episode, I will mention that two weeks ago, I was teaching a course to a group of 18-year-olds, and I pointed out to them that the gender of the word spirit in Genesis 1, as in God's spirit, that is fluttering. So that spirit, or ruach, is feminine. Then we went into a huge, long discussion about if that changes what they think the text is saying. And that led to a great conversation about the variety of ways God is described in the Bible with analogies that are both male and female specific, which can be amplified or muted depending on the translation. But that sort of goes outside the boundaries of this particular seminar, although Maybe we can host a Hot topic seminar on that sometime. I can't wait until next week because we take a completely different turn as I introduce you to another faculty member of IBC, Dr. Ashley Lyon. You probably have read some of her magazine articles and she is in the process of developing a course for IBC. Dr. Lyon wrote her PhD on lesser known Hebrew words in the Bible. And I think you will really enjoy hearing more about her story and her connections with IBC. We have such a great team. And if you wanna join this whole online community, taking a new look at the Bible, you are most welcome to join our community at the israelbiblecenter.com. We have a large collection of courses you can combine together and earn a certificate in Jewish context and culture. Thank you, Jeremy McDonald from Mason Jar Music for doing an amazing job mixing, editing, and crafting all the good sounds you hear. And thank you for hanging out with me and being curious about all things Bible-related.